Paul's use of Habakkuk, the 34th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews, was presented by Jack Crabtree on February 19, 2017, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. We looked at Habakkuk last week. There's a passage in Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4, that uh, is quoted three times in the New Testament, and once it's quoted in Hebrews 10, the passage that we would be getting to if we were to return to our series in, in Hebrews. The question I asked last week that I didn't get a chance to answer, we ran out of time. Does Habakkuk 2, 2 to 4 mean what Paul is suggesting, clearly suggesting that it means? Or is it saying what Paul says it says? Or is Paul somehow imposing a meaning on Habakkuk that it obviously doesn't have? And the reason that's important to me is because the, really the integrity of the gospel is at stake. The, in, the integrity of the apostolic teaching is at stake. If he's making all this stuff up and it's not really there in the scripture and yet he's pretending that he's getting this in the scripture, there's something fraudulent about that, something not right about that. And so we need to check that out and make sure that, that that's not the case. We got through most of Habakkuk last week, and I won't revisit that, but I want to focus on 2, 2 through 4. However, I did, I did run into something this week that I adjust a little bit what I said last week, so I do want to look at that. In Acts 13, this is where Paul has, is on his first missionary journey. He's traveled to Pisidian Antioch. And in Pisidian Antioch, he's teaching in the synagogue. I'm going to pick it up right in the middle, um, toward, the, toward the end of his sermon. And, and as you know, as you probably know, uh, he was invited to speak, and that, and that was not unusual. Apparently, that was not unusual. If you had a visitor, you would have a lesson out of the law and out of the prophets, and they would read the law or the prophets, uh, and then they call up, and then somebody would comment on it. And if you had if you had a guest there, they would invite them to comment on it. Well, Paul was a guest; they invited him to comment on it. Paul begins the message by basically rehearsing much of the history of Israel, uh, the covenants that God made with uh, um, Abraham, David, and so on. And then he gets to this point. This is in chapter 13, if you want to follow along. Acts 13, verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, 
fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised up from the dead no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Those are both quotes from Psalms. And then he quotes another Psalm. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes Habakkuk. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Now, that's from chapter 1 of Habakkuk, just a few paragraphs before the, uh, the passage that we're looking at. And I've never really paid any attention to that before, but it really got my attention for a variety of reasons here. Everyone that I know, including myself, has taken, Behold you scoffers and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you, as the, arising, the rising of the Babylonians as a military power that is going to come and be used by God to judge Judah. I've just always assumed that's what he's talking about. Your New American Standard seems to take it that way. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans are the name that is given to the Babylonians by Habakkuk. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth, to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. That seems really straightforward and and easy and transparent. The problem is, what on earth is Paul doing with it in Acts? He's just told them that the proof is there that Jesus actually is the Messiah, the promised son of David, the the one that we've been waiting for. He's, He's proved that in, or I mean he's underlined that fact over and over and over again throughout his message. And then he says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
and through him everyone who believes is justified. Some texts just stop there. Or others have is freed from justified with respect to all from which you could not be uh, freed through the law of Moses or justified through the law of Moses. He introduces, after having said, so we have the Messiah, and I'm telling you, with respect to the Messiah, um, I'm announcing to you the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Which looks like he's getting to a point where he's going to call upon them to make a choice, to make an existential decision, to make a commitment here. Are you in or are you not in? Uh, If you're in, there's forgiveness in Jesus. If you reject him, well, that's a different story. That's what it looks like he's going. Therefore, so here's here's the bottom line for him, therefore take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes that Habakkuk passage. So what is he saying? Therefore take heed, you don't want the Babylonians coming? Is that what he's saying? The other thing that's striking about I I don't think so. Now, it could very well be that he's using the coming of the Babylonians as some kind of example or representation of just judgment in general. That's possible. Um, But the other thing that struck me here, and I have never noticed this before, is the way he words this. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Now, I suppose it's possible that the things spoken of in the prophets is what he's about to tell you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days. But why, would, why does he not say the things spoken of by the prophet? Why is it in the prophets? Now, it may be that the prophets is a category of the scriptures, so uh, he's just locating it in their scriptures somehow. That's a possibility. But the reason it struck, stuck out at me is it sounds like what he's saying is the thing that the prophets harp on over and over and over and over and over again. The thing that you learned by reading the prophets, the thing that you learned to look forward to, that's not the right word, but the thing that you learned to fear, in this case, by reading the prophets. Um, And the reason that's significant to me is because it makes a big difference. it's, It's very helpful to understand how the apostles read the prophets that as a young Bible teacher, Bible student, trying to find my way, you'd go to the prophets, I couldn't make any sense out of them at all. And one of the reasons I've realized that I couldn't make any sense out of them is the universe of possibilities for what a prophet could be talking about was like infinite. You know, he could be talking about something that happened over here across the river in Edom, or he could be talking about something that happened in Saudi Arabia, or it could be something that happened down in Egypt, or he could be talking about something over here, over here, and I don't know history, and a lot of history didn't get written down. Maybe he's talking about something that didn't even get written down. See the infinity of possibilities for what am I supposed to understand this prophet to be zeroing in on? 
when history is pretty big and pretty vast. But over time, I think I've come to realize that the prophets are basically giving the same message over and over and over and over again. Different way, from a different angle, different details, different specifics. But when it comes right down to it, it's not really a different message. It's the same message again. I, I was trying to think of an example. If you think about in our, in our Christian tradition, if somebody, was, if somebody needed comfort in the face of the possibility of death, for example, wouldn't every Christian tradition basically say, well, you know death is not the end. And we would mean, and we know what we would mean. We know they're going to go to heaven. Now, understand, I don't believe any of this stuff, but that, that's what our Christian traditions teach. You die and you go to heaven. It's a nice place. It's a place of rest. It's a comfortable place. Everything will be okay. You don't have anything to worry about. You don't have anything to be afraid of. Because there's one, there's one reality that is used to answer the question, should I or should I not fear death? It's one reality that answers that question. Okay, in the prophets, what's the question? The question is not, should I fear death? The question is, how should I live? What should I do? How should I think about my existence? And it seems to me that there's one reality that the prophets always go to to answer that question. Well, and what I'll, I'll, I'm going to make this a little bit more complex in a second, but, well, there's a judgment day coming. There's a slow train coming for you St. Bobby fans. Their judgment day is coming, and judgment day, you're going to have to answer for how you live your life, the choices you made, the commitments you made, the, the priorities you adopted. So make your choices and live your life in the light of the reality that out there in the future, inevitably, it's coming. A judgment day is coming. Well, I think, I think that, that that's the message over and over and over and over again. It's not that the, prof, the prophets have a unique and special message for each and every generation of Jews in each and every different historical circumstance. The answer is the same no matter at what point you are in history, no matter what culture you're from, no matter what situation you're from, the answer is going to be the same. There's judgment coming. It's not your crops are going to fail. It's not the rivers are going to dry up. It's um, God is going to set all things right. And, and that, now, now let, me, let me fill out the picture here a little bit. The most, the most helpful prophet of all of them for me is Malachi. Last chapter of Malachi. Because I think this is Malachi's talking about that one reality, that one reality that provides the context, the the focus point for our entire lives. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
For behold, the day is coming. Okay, it's a day. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day is coming, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither leave them neither root nor branch. So on the one hand, a day is coming that's like a furnace. It's going to burn up the evildoer and the arrogant, the unrighteous, the unjust, are literally going to be destroyed by the, by the furnace that's ablaze on this day. But for you who fear the name, for, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, and that's S-U-N, not S-O-N, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So this same day, where the sun is going to come and is a blazing furnace that is going to burn so hot that it will burn up the unrighteous like so much chaff and turn the unrighteous to ashes, uh, is going to be, it's going to have healing on its wings, he says. So what for the unrighteous is a terrible day, for the righteous it is a great and wonderful day of salvation and healing. So let me read that again. For, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. So a reference to the law given on Mount Sinai here. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there's going to be a prophet sent to herald the coming of this day, but the phrase is very appropriate, the great and terrible day of the Lord. He, Elijah, will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Okay, um, one way to read the opening of Habakkuk is to see the thing that Habakkuk is marveling at is that great and terrible day of the Lord, to to use the language of Malachi. So let me let me read the opening of actually I'm going to read it first about a possible English translation of the Hebrew text of the first six verses of Habakkuk. I'm going to read two through six. How long, O Yahweh, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous 
therefore justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, and so on. And the way I looked at that last week is that he must be complaining about the wickedness and the injustice and the unrighteousness in Judah, in his own, among his own countrymen in Judah. And he's, he's, comparing, he's complaining about that. And then God tells him, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. I've got the Babylonians coming, and they're going to judge the wickedness of Judah right here. That's the way I looked at it last week. But I looked at the Greek translation of this same passage in the Old Testament, and, and it's, not significant, I mean, it's not terribly different, but there are enough changes that it, it seems to me it, it makes it sound like Habakkuk is crying out to God for his own personal help in the, in the midst of injustice and evil. Okay? Let me, let me read a possible translation of the Septuagint. How long, or, O Lord, shall I cry out and you will heart, not hearken? How long shall I cry out to you, being injured, and you will not save? Why have you shown me troubles and griefs to look upon, misery and ungodliness, Judgment is up against me, but the judge receives a reward. Therefore, the law is frustrated, and judgment proceeds without effect, for the ungodly man prevails over the just. Therefore, perverse judgment will continue. And then this, this passage, but it reads differently in the Greek. Behold, you detractors, look and wonder and marvel and be destroyed, for I will work a work in your days which you would in no wise believe, even if a man were to declare it to you. And then he has, for this reason, behold, I stir up the Chaldeans. But what if there's a break between five and six? What if six is a whole new prophecy, if you will? And that what he's doing in two through five is he's saying he's crying out to God for justice. God, I'm a victim of, of this injustice, and it appears to be even within a, within a courtroom setting. Um, I'm a victim of injustice. The, the decks are stacked against me. The judge is taking a bribe, a reward. The judge is taking a bribe, and he's not giving me justice. He's, he's uh, uh, making a judgment against me, so on and so forth. He lays that before God, And God responds, Behold, you detractors, look and wonder. And and now, what would they be detractors from? They'd be detractors from the way God is running his reality, is running his universe. I mean, all of us are detractors, right? All of us, at one point or another, face into the realities of the injustice of this world. We've been victims of other people's evil without, without recourse. Uh, without any kind of recompense, without justice being done. And we're we're tempted to anger and to bitterness and all kinds of responses. Um, And out of that, one of the things that comes out of that is, God, why? 
Why this reality? You're the, you're the God who said, let, light, let there be light and there was light. You could have brought about a, a righteous kingdom of God by speaking it into existence from the very beginning. Why make us suffer under the kind of oppression and violence and wickedness and perversion and injustice that we are surrounded with? And if we don't feel it for ourselves, we see other people who are victimized by it. And our hearts go out to them, and our hearts break. And we go, why? I mean, even, even when you have an answer to the problem of evil, <laughs> and, and I think I do, but even when you have an answer to the problem of evil, you still are astonished at the level at which evil is allowed to, uh, to run rampant in this world. You go, really? You have, you have to let it be that bad? Right? So all of us are detractors to a certain extent. And I think, I think God is responding to, and, and I think Habakkuk, if, if we take him in those three verses to be taking that stand as a detractor, Behold, you detractors. He's making a general statement. Behold, you detractors. Look and wonder and marvel and be destroyed. For I work a work in your days which you would in no wise believe even if a man were to declare it to you. Now, what on earth could that be? The problem with it being the Babylonians is, is it really all that unfathomable that the Babylonians, a fierce and wicked people, would come and be empire builders and would destroy people? I mean, the Assyrians had done it before them. How is that unfathomable? How, why would I not believe it if somebody told me? But the one thing that really seems unbelievable to every one of us is there is a day coming when righteousness is going to prevail and unrighteousness is going to be punished, rejected, um, put down, and no longer allowed to prevail. That seems a pipe dream to us, doesn't it? We don't really expect it. Even when the Bible tells us it's coming, do we really do we really think that's really going to happen one day? Well, hopefully if we're believers, we've come to believe that. But you know, but but notice how unimaginable that is to us. And I just wonder if that's not what he's saying. Behold, you detractors, look and wonder and marvel and be destroyed. For I work a work in your day which you would in no wise believe if in a man were to declare it to you. Well, what is that day? It's when it's that day when the sun burning like a furnace will burn up the unrighteousness like chaff, and it will have healing on its wings. It will be a day of healing and salvation to the righteous, and a day of judgment and condemnation and destruction to the wicked. Well, in any case, that's, I think, exactly what uh, Habakkuk had in mind in Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4. So we can look at that now, Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4. Then Yahweh responded to me and said, Write the vision even plainly upon a tablet so that the one who reads it might pursue it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time, it will emerge at the end, and it will not fail. 
If it delays, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not tarry. If he should hesitate, my soul has no pleasure in him, but the one who is dikaios by virtue of his belief shall live. And just to remind you, dikaios, uh, the way Paul uses it, means someone who's going to be pardoned for their evil and be granted the blessing of eternal life that they don't deserve rather than the destruction that they do deserve. It, it's a loaded term that includes both of those things. So Yahweh responded, okay, now, um, what's he responding to? We looked at verse 6 where, okay, the Babylonians are coming. They're coming no matter how you take the first five verses. The Babylonians are coming from 6 on. And he describes their, how vicious they are and how wretched they are. And at the end of that, Paul, or sorry, Paul, Habakkuk asked the questions, okay, dude, but wait, um, they're, even more, they're even more unrighteous than Judah is. So you have, how can your eyes look upon, your eyes are too pure to favor unrighteousness over righteousness. What's with that? So he says, I'll, I'll take my seat on the guard post and I'll wait, I'll wait to hear from you, God. I, I need an answer to this question. How is it that you can use the unrighteous to punish the righteous, essentially? So Yahweh responded to me. So this is his response to that issue. Now, it's not just, I, I, think, it, I think it's clear to me that it's not just how can you use the Babylonians to judge Israel, uh, Judah. It's how can you use unrighteous people to judge righteous people. That's the issue. So whatever it is he answers can't be some kind of specific answer that only solves the problem of the Babylonians coming against Judah. Because after the Babylonians, you have the Persians. And after the Persians, you have the Greeks. And after the Greeks, you have the Romans. And after the Romans, you have the Muslims. I mean, you have a whole string of destructive imperial forces that um, are going to, that would raise, all of which, every one of which would raise the same complaints in Habakkuk's mind that the Babylonians do. What Habakkuk wants an answer to is not the Babylonians, it's the problem of human history. Why do bad guys keep coming out on top? What's with that? You've got these innocent little people trying to live their lives and get along and, and live decent lives, and evil, wretched, rapacious, greedy people who have no moral principles and no scruples come along and destroy them. What's with that? That's the question I think that Habakkuk wants an answer to. So Yahweh responded to him and said, Write the vision, even plainly upon a tablet, so that the one who reads it may pursue it. Well, what vision? We're not, it's not at all clear that there's a vision anywhere near verse 2 of chapter 2. So, I think the only thing, the only sense we can make of this is Habakkuk 
sitting on his watchtower, has received a vision from Yahweh. We're not privy to that vision, but he has received a vision. And after having received the vision, then Yahweh uh, comes along with this response. Write the vision, even plainly upon a tablet, so that the one who reads it may pursue it. So the question is, what was that vision? And that's the $6 million question. It seems to me that it has to be a vision that basically has the same content to it, is a picture of the same reality that's being described in Malachi 4. That day that is coming, burning like a furnace. Uh, It's going to burn up the unrighteous like so much chaff, but it's got wings of heat, it's got healing on its wings. So the great and terrible day of the Lord, terrible for the unrighteous and great for the righteous, I think. That the vision that Habakkuk received, I think, is exactly that same reality, however, however God portrayed that to him. That's the reality being portrayed. So what is Yahweh supposed to do? He's supposed to publicize that to everybody. Publicize the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord so that the one who reads about it might pursue it. It's literally might run. But the thing that makes the most sense to me is so that the one who reads it might live their life now in the light of this reality. That whatever, whatever run means, that's what it comes down to that they might now um, proceed in their life in the light of this reality, the great and terrible day of the Lord that is coming. Now the vision is yet for the appointed time. And I, I should emphasize the yet there. I think the point that Habakkuk is making, making is, this vision I gave you, it's not going to happen soon. This is not for now. Things are not going to be set right yet. They're not going to be set right in your lifetime or anybody that you know, their lifetime. It's not for now. It's for some time appointed out there in the future. The vision is yet for the appointed time. And then he tells us when. It will emerge at the end. So I think, what he, I think he's explicitly telling us this great and terrible day of the Lord is going, to, is going to emerge at something that can, can reasonably be called the end. Now, what do, what do I think the end is? I think the end that he's talking about is the end of this age, is one way of describing it. The end of history as we know it. The end of this phase of history, which is... What's, what characterizes this phase of history? Unrighteousness prevails over righteousness. The unrighteous win, the righteous lose. It's where everything has been turned upside down in this phase of history. Well, at the end of this phase of history, that's the appointed time. It will emerge at the end, and it will not fail. And I think what he means by that is it, it will not fail to come. This day is coming, and it will not fail to come. 
You can count on it. If it delays, is it coming soon? No, it's not coming soon. It's, it's going to delay. You're gonna, there's going to be generation after generation after generation after generation of unrighteous people beating up on righteous people and unrighteous people having the upper hand over righteous people. It's going to keep happening, and it's going to keep happening for a long time. If it delays, now what, what happens when we see that happening over and over and over again? We despair, right? We're tempted to despair. It's never going to be any different. Righteousness will never prevail. And so he's, he's telling us, however, if it delays, wait for it. Keep expecting it. Keep looking for it. Um, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not, and I could have translated that delay. It will not delay. Uh, how would we put it in our idiom? It will not be delayed, I think we would put it. It may delay, but it will not be delayed. You see the distinction I'm making? We use the language, it will not be delayed, when we mean something happened that prevented it from, from, from happening. Something, some obstacle got in the way that prevented something from happening. It may delay, that is, there may, you may have to wait for it, but it's not going to not happen it won't be delayed. Now, if he should hesitate, or if one should hesitate, my soul has no pleasure in him. Okay, what's he talking about? The way Paul is going to use it in Hebrews, it makes it clear that this is how Paul is interpreting it. To hesitate is to hesitate to place your belief, your faith, your trust, your hope, in this vision. The vision is the day is coming. If you hesitate in your willingness to believe that that day is coming, he says, my soul has no pleasure in him. And Im- implicit in that is, you, you are likely to be subject to God's wrath. God's not impressed much. God doesn't much like it. His soul has no pleasure in you if you are unwilling to know God to be and learn that God is a God of righteousness and goodness and justice who has every intention of setting things right. If you don't know that about him, if you're unwilling to learn that about about him, if you're unwilling to hope in that and trust in that and embrace embrace that about him, then... uh, then he has no pleasure in you. It frankly takes a miracle that any of us have that kind of openness and positivity and receptivity to God such that we are open to believing that about God and about the way he's running his universe. But if we have that openness and receptivity to it, things are going to go differently. But if we hesitate, if we are unwilling to believe, then he has no pleasure in us. By contrast, the one who is dikaios by virtue of his belief, he will live. So the one who hesitates, in parallel, is the one who doesn't believe. 
The one who doesn't hesitate is the one who believes. And if we believe, then we are dikaios in God's eyes. We are not people in whom God takes no pleasure. Rather, we are dikaios in God's eyes. And what does that mean, again? We, we are people that God deems um, fit to be forgiven for our evil and to fit to be granted life even though we don't deserve it. Okay. Now, obviously, that's very, a very important verse to Paul. He quotes it in Romans. And I'll, I'll read those. Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness or the dikaiosune of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith, or better, but the translated better, but the righteous by faith shall live. That's Habakkuk passage that we just looked at. Paul, interestingly, sees in Habakkuk, Habakkuk is writing at a time where the Mosaic Covenant is in force, right? So everyone knows, everyone expects, who is it that's the chaos in God's eyes? Well, it's the covenant keeper, it's the law keeper, right? Habakkuk, right in the middle of that kind of culture and that kind of circumstance, has this um, has God telling us, write this vision on tablet so that people can see it and read it. The one who hesitates to believe it, my soul is not pleased with him, but the one who believes it, he will live. He is Dikaios, and because he's Dikaios, he will live. God, what about the covenant? Does he have to be a covenant keeper? Well, he's not ruling out that he will be a covenant keeper, but he's clearly saying, but it takes more than being a covenant keeper. You have to, as you face into the reality of this day that is coming, you need to take it seriously, and you need to believe in it, and you need to put your trust in it, and you need to expect it. That's the one who will live. That's the one who's to chaos. So that's, that's why Paul can then see that as a precedent for you have to keep the covenant? Yeah, okay, but Jesus is God's Messiah. Do you believe it? If you hesitate to believe that, God's soul is not pleased with you. It's the one who believes it by virtue of, it's the one who's to chaos by virtue of believing that Jesus is Messiah who will live. So Paul sees a direct parallel between the belief that he's calling people to and the belief that Habakkuk is calling them to. And that's basically the same thing in Galatians. So I won't, I won't look at that any further. But let me, let me open it up here for your questions before I go, go on any further. I'm going to say back what I think, what I think you're explaining and so you can see if I'm understanding right. It seems like what Habakkuk is doing, he's complaining to God that God is going to send unrighteous Babylonians to 
deal with the Jews who, even if they're unjust, at least they're more righteous than the Babylonians. And God is saying, maybe because Habakkuk thinks that's unfair. Like, what about the actually righteous people who are going to get killed? And God seems to be responding, let me show you how we're going to see who the really righteous people are. Write down the vision that judgment is coming. And the people who are really righteous are going to believe it, and they're going to run away, and they will be spared. So, No. Um, okay. And then this is... Okay. I'll let you take it from... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I looked at that long and mm-hmm. hard as a possible okay. interpretation of Habakkuk. Uh, no, I don't think he's saying the one... See, it's not... If they believe the Babylonians are coming write that message on a billboard, they'll read it. If they believe it, they will run away, they will flee, and therefore be spared from the Babylonians. I don't think that's what he's saying. That doesn't fit with the way Paul uses it. Um, Rather, the run is not flee. The run is uh, proceed in their life, conduct their life from now on in a certain way. So the one... So that the ones who read it may now, in the light of what they have read, conduct their life in that way. He's basically saying, make it plain and visible so they can read it and be instructed by it, essentially. Okay. I forgot how I was going to... So then how is Paul taking that up again? He's Paul is saying, it's... The, the truly righteous person is the one that sees that warning and takes it seriously. Um, as opposed to like somebody who could be a law keeper, but who might not heed Habakkuk's message. They could be right. keeping the law, but then when they hear Habakkuk's message, they say, not for me. In the same way somebody could be keeping the law, but look at Jesus and say, not for me, and Paul is making a, an al- a comparison between those? Okay, I'm not sure I cut all of that, but let me, let me try. Um, in Habakkuk's day, you could have someone who is a thoroughgoing keeper of the law. God sends a message through the prophet, the day is coming, the day, there's a great and terrible day of the Lord coming. You need to live your life in the light of that. And the person could be completely um, dismissive of that. Still, still going to keep the law. Still going to be a good Jew. Still going to do what God says. But I'm completely dismissive of this reality that God has predicted through his prophet Habakkuk. I'm not much interested in having that inform my life. Fast forward to Paul. So in, the, in the day of Paul, you had oodles of Jews who were earnest, sincere, committed law keepers. They kept the law. Paul comes along and says, ah, by the way, have you heard? Uh, God's Messiah finally came. It's Jesus. Nah, I don't don't believe that. No, no, really. He raised from the dead, blah, 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 blah. Nah, I I don't believe that. They're still going to keep the law. They're still law keepers, but they have rejected the reality 
of God's Messiah that God himself has put in place. And to that person, Paul says, that doesn't cut it. I don't care how good of a law keeper you are. Um, you've, you have, in fact, the passage we look at in Hebrews is going to make that crystal clear. You've rejected, uh, you, you've, uh, how do you put it? You've despised the, the Messiah. So your rejection of the Messiah, I don't suggest, it speaks louder about who you are in relationship to God. Your rejection of the Messiah speaks louder than all the law-keeping in the world that you, that you could do. That's telling me who you really are. Okay, I think, okay you that... may, I think you may have answered my question, and I think I figured out what my question was, <laughs> which is, uh, are, you seeing, are you seeing the way this is working as your belief shows that you are righteous, true, one of the truly righteous, or you become one of the truly righteous through belief? Is that uh, a meaningful distinction? Is that it? Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, it's a very important distinction. I think your belief shows your true righteousness. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Wh- wh- which leads me to finally answering the question. So is Paul making up something out of Habakkuk that he has no right to make up, or is he discovering something that's really there? If, if we think that both Habakkuk and Paul are saying that it's the content of our belief that makes us to chaos, then the way Paul is using Habakkuk is not legitimate. Because Habakkuk, the content of Habakkuk's belief is a different content than the content of the belief that Paul is advocating. What's the content of Habakkuk's belief? In a nutshell, there's a great and terrible day of the Lord coming. That's not the gospel for Paul. That's not inconsistent with the gospel for Paul, but it's not really the heart of the gospel. If, if Paul were to, to say in one word, what is it that we must believe in order to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. He really is that Messiah. Well, that, that's a different belief, right? So how can he look to Habakkuk as any kind of support for his gospel that we will be saved if we believe in Jesus, the believe the truth about Jesus? Um, how, how can he do that? Well, it has to be that Paul is not seeing the content of my belief as being what makes me to chaos, but rather something that that belief reflects, something that that belief is connected to. And uh, Logan spilled the beans last week. The, the only thing that makes sense to me is that throughout I think this is true of Paul. I think this is true of Habakkuk. I think you can show this in the various prophets that this is the real, the real, uh, their real concern is that what you believe is going to be reflective of what 
the condition of your heart, the state of your heart, the state of your insides. Are my insides so oriented and in such a condition that I am positive toward God and the things of God, welcoming toward God and the things of God, receptive to God and the things of God? Or am I hesitant, wary, suspicious, mistrusting, negative, uh, and so on? I mean, I'm one or the other. I'm, I'm, I've e- I'm either oriented positively toward God or, if not positively toward God, I'm oriented negatively toward God. And when God comes along and um, makes predictions or makes promises or tells you what he's up to in the world, the condition of your heart is going to dictate and determine how you react to what God has, has told you. So in the case of Habakkuk, what is it that God let us in on? There's this day coming, the great and terrible day of the Lord. In the gospel of Jesus, what is it that God let us in on? Jesus, this peasant from Galilee who like got himself killed by the Romans, ah, that's my Messiah. That's the truth. Now, if I'm open to learning from God and receptive to God, I come to believe that that's the truth because it reflects the condition of my heart, which is what really, ultimately, is, is what makes me dikaios in God's eyes, is that I have that kind of heart. In the case of Habakkuk, it was a different, it was a different belief that tested me in a different way. Go all the way back to Abraham, another one that Paul really likes to quote. And Abraham believed God, and it was considered to him as dikaiosune. Well, what is it that Abraham believed? God had come along and promised him he's going to have a son. And when he believed that he really was going to have the son that God promised him he's going to have, the text says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as dikaiosune. Well, I could never believe that I'm going to have a son and be justified in God's eyes. It's not going to test me in the same way that it did Abraham. And it's not even relevant in the same way as it is Abraham. In the case of Abraham, it was connected to a larger process, uh, promise, to the larger promise that, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to make you a nation, uh, a people that are going to have me as their God. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I won't, I, don't, I won't take the time here, but the one thing that the belief that Abraham had to believe, the belief that Habakkuk is asking his followers to believe, and the belief that Paul is telling us we have to believe to be saved, they're all interrelated because they're all different facets of one and the same reality. And what is that one and the same reality? The coming of the kingdom of God. That's what Abraham was, was believing God for. God had promised him, I'll make you a great nation. That great nation, we're gonna, you're going to be the people of God, and I will be your God, and I'll plant you in the land, and I will prosper you in the land, 
and I will protect you in the land, and I will give you Shabbat in the land, um, so on and so forth. Well, by the time that gets filled out by the prophets and the rest of the New Testament, what are we talking about? We're talking about the kingdom of God entered into history, where Jesus is ruling over Israel as their king in righteousness, ruling over a righteous people in righteousness in the land that God had given to them thousands of thousands of years earlier. And then we also know that how is that kingdom going to come about? Well, there's, there's some resolution to this phase of history that needs to happen. This is the phase of history where unrighteousness has the upper hand. Well, there's a great and terrible day of the Lord coming where that's going to end. On that day, God is going to call everyone to account. Evil is going to be destroyed. Wickedness is going to be destroyed or at least sub, uh, subjugated. And who's going to do that? Jesus, God's Messiah, who's going to return again. And he's going to subjugate evil, destroy the enemies of God, establish his kingdom that will have ascendancy in the world. A righteous people ruled by a righteous king will be on top in history, not on the bottom. No longer will the Gentiles be stomping all over uh, the, the Jews and God's people. God's people will be in a, in a position of ascendancy in the nations. Everyone will look up to them. Everyone will honor them. Everyone will serve them. That'll be a whole new gig. And there's this watershed, watershed event, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the day of the wrath of the Lamb that's going to put an end to one phase of history and is going to inaugurate this whole new phase of history where things have been morally turned on their head. So was Abraham believing in that day? Yeah, in his own way. We, I've got to have a son first in order for that to even be possible. <laughs> but that's what he's looking forward to is, well... You've made these promises, all these promises, but I need to have a son. Well, if you say I'm going to have a son, I'm going to have a son because I believe all these promises are true. So he's ultimately believing the same promises that you and I are. Habakkuk was looking at a certain aspect of that reality. Paul is looking at another aspect of that reality. You can't have that kingdom without the king. Jesus is that king. And Jesus, who's going to be the king of that kingdom, has arrived. God has brought him into history. He's no longer just a hope for the future. He's a, re- he's a real being that God has brought into existence now. So to believe in Jesus, that is to believe that Jesus is that, that one that God has um, promised, is a huge big deal. But it's all connected to one and the same reality. Well, the, that reality tests us. You know, it, it would be very weird and very different if uh, Paul had come along and said, believe that Jesus is going to be left-handed, or believe that the Messiah is going to be left-handed and you will be saved. Sure, why not? That, that doesn't test me. 
It doesn't, there's nothing moral about that belief. There's no moral dimension to that belief. But to believe, I have to believe that God is a certain kind of God in order to believe in the reality of the coming kingdom of God that God has promised. And I either do or I don't. I either know that God or I don't know that God. I either want God to be that God and love him for being that God or I hate him for being that God. And that sorts me out. That, that figures out what kind of insides uh, make me tick. And it's what makes me dikaios is I have the heart, the inwardness, the insides that wants to know God, that loves God for who he is, that wants his purposes to be done, that is expecting and looking forward to his purposes to be done. In other words, I believe. Okay, question. I have two questions, Jack, um, <clears throat> if you're up to it. Um, Sorry. I have two questions if you're up to it. Sure. How would you characterize Habakkuk's vision? Um, <clears throat> a vision of warning? Or a vision of hope? Uh, hope, it, because it, it's ultimately hope because it's answering Habakkuk, Habakkuk's question. Habakkuk's question is, are you going to just let unrighteousness go on forever, uh, prevailing over righteousness? And the vision is answering that with a resounding, no, I'm not. The day is coming where I will put an end to that. So I, I, I think that's a vision of hope. Um, can you speculate a little bit? It seems to me that the believing Hebrews that Paul is writing to might really identify with Habakkuk in the sense that if, because it seems to me that if Habakkuk was being oppressed by, you know, um, unrighteous judges and and unrighteous people in power, wouldn't this be like parallel almost? Yeah, to, exactly. To what the Hebrew believing Hebrews are suffering at the moment. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about in the book of Hebrews. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the parallel is amazing, and that and that's why Paul quotes a little bit more of Habakkuk, I think, um, in Hebrews than he does in Romans and Galatians, because he's actually drawing that parallel that. What Roger's talking about, and just a little bit of review, why, why do we have the book of Hebrews at all? These Jews, who are Jews, have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And what has happened is because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they've become social outcasts. They've, be, they've become the people that you can beat up on, you can take to court, you can cheat them, you can rob them, you can hire them and not pay them their wages, you can do all kinds of mean, nasty, unjust stuff toward them uh, because they're Jesus believers. They're, they're Nazarenes, uh, which is you know the worst thing you could call somebody. Um, so they're being subjected to all this persecution uh, simply by virtue of the fact that they believe in Jesus. That they are beginning, therefore, to grow weary of the persecution and decide, I uh, don't know if it's worth it to take the name of Jesus. I'm not sure it's worth it. And why don't I just quietly forget about Jesus, go back to the temple, start living a, a, 
a plain old ordinary life as a good Jew so that people will accept me and will stop picking on me, will stop persecuting me. Well, the, the point that Paul is making is, as, as Habakkuk says, if it, if it waits or if it delays, wait for it. Um, it's coming. It's, it, in a little while, it's coming. Well, a little while, relatively speaking, but in a little while, it is coming. That is, it's not going to fail. And the same, the same message that a Habakkuk needs to hear in Habakkuk is what the believers in Hebrews need to hear, is that, yeah, I know it's hard. I know you're weary. I know, I know dealing with uh, injustice and oppression and persecution is really, it really sucks, but um, hang in there. Just, just persevere. Maybe I missed your explanation of this, so I'm sorry if, if I'm asking you to repeat something, but if you could um, kind of go over a little bit more um, in verse 19, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And then I'm kind of wondering if you could connect that to at the end of the passage that you read, um, he quotes Habakkuk, and then the people want more, and they kind of follow them outside the synagogue, and the words that Paul and Barnabas say to him is they urge him them to continue in grace. And, and I just was wondering if that was kind of a completion of the thought up above. Could you interact with I, that? I'm sorry, if which was the completion of which thought? Well, of them, him urging them to continue in grace. How is that connected up to um, what's above? Well, uh, yeah, the, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't given enough thought to it, but my first thought is that it's connected with, therefore let it be known, brethren, that connected with him is the forgiveness of sin, the pr- Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's the message of grace that mm-hmm. Paul is giving to them. Mm-hmm. So I, I would assume that that's it. So that's kind of a complete thought, which he, well, okay. So so when it says, um, through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Could you elaborate on that? Well, I, I didn't get a chance to look at that. Again, there's textual variance there. Okay. Your, your basic generic Greek text that you would get off the Bible bookstore shelf doesn't even have that on it. But what I haven't, what I haven't looked for is what's the textual evidence for it being in, included or not included. And I, I didn't get around to looking at that. I'm so. sorry, what being included or not being included? Um, Verse, many of your Greek texts are going to end with, and through him, everyone who believes is decreed just. Dikaios, period. And it ends there. Are we talking about verse 39? 39, Uh uh-huh. So your translation, um, well, the New American Standard, who believes is freed from all things, you're saying that that's not a good translation? Well, it's not a good translation in any case because the Greek word is dikaio. Oh. So 
and through him everyone who believes is decreed to chaos uh, in relation to all things it would have to be uh, from which you could not be decreed to chaos through the law of Moses. So at a minimum it shouldn't be translated freed. I have absolutely no idea why the English translators never, not e- nowhere else in the New American Standard do they translate that verb freed. Why did they do it here? I, I don't, I, it just doesn't make any sense. So the translation is poor to start with, but there's the added problem is that the text itself, some manuscripts only read in the Greek and through him everyone who believes is justified, dikaio, period. That's it. So the next part is just a textual variant. Yeah, either those texts have omitted something that ought to be there Mm. or uh, the other text that the New American Standard is translating has added something that that does not belong there. And I, and I, I haven't looked at it to make a determination okay. in my own mind about Thank that. Thank you. So you were seeing the opening of Habakkuk as him relating his own experience? Well, I... Or is he... Okay. My, my mind is not thinking well enough to have any conclusions, but um, it, it, did con- it did occur to me that when I look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it reads differently to me than the Masoretic text. The Greek translation is what Paul is clearly quoting in Hebrews 10. So he doesn't have any problem with the Greek translation. And arguably, some have argued that at least in some books, the Hebrew text underlying the Greek translation is actually a better and more original and more authentic Hebrew text than the Masoretic text. Do you understand what I mean by the Masoretic text? The Masoretic text is the text, the Hebrew text, that typically people read today. It comes from about 600 A.D. Okay. The Dead Sea, the Septuagint, was translated roughly somewhere around 300 B.C., so a thousand years earlier. And it's not at all clear that what the Hebrew text that they were translating was the same text as our Masoretic text from 600 AD. In fact, it seems pretty clear to me that at times it wasn't. I think that's the case here in in Habakkuk, is that the Hebrew text was a different text, and I think a preferable text. So if I go with the Greek translation to get closer to the actual original Hebrew text, it reads more like a a very personal struggle with injustice that he's experienced that is, that is introducing his prophecy. And, and so if I'm right then in the way that he is using verse 5, that is the answer. I mean, talk about a short prophecy. Complain, complain, complain. The great and terrible day of the Lord will take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> This is why I'm wondering if, if he, you know, he's having this experience. So look, I'm a prophet, and I should, you know, I yell, repent. Everybody should repent. But that's not what I see. I, I see my people living unholy lives. And so, what's up with that? And then, um, 
instead of seeing the the invasion of the Chaldeans as a picture of the great and terrible day of the Lord, God is telling to him, this is going to be awful, but this isn't the great and terrible day of the Lord. Seal that up for the time when it's going to happen. But what you're about to experience is not the end of the world, and it's not when you get set free and taken into Shabbat. This is the invasion of the Chaldeans that I'm bringing down upon you because you've been a bunch of miserable wretches and have rejected everything I have asked you to do that you agreed to in the covenant. And so, in a sense, I'm, I get a little bit of a feel of that with Paul when he says, it's like, I'm not, I'm not, Paul's not claiming this is the great and terrible day of the Lord. Right? It's like Habakkuk. He made that clear. When the Chaldeans destroyed everything, that wasn't the end of history. Jesus is not the end of history, but he is your Messiah. And you should believe that because your own book declares it. And so to reject Jesus is to reject the God who gave you the prophets. I think my mind has given out. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I followed all that. Okay. Uh, I fear that maybe I misled you in, okay. in how I'm taking some of that, but I couldn't follow all that. Maybe if you want to try again. But I won't subject the rest of you to me any longer. Thank you.